We solemnly swear we're up to no good. Hi, I'm Gary Roby. I'm Victoria Laguna. And we're the hosts of Harry Potter Minute, the fan podcast where we overanalyze the Harry Potter movies one magical minute at a time. Join us as we argue about whether or not McGonagall would meow at Dumbledore. She wouldn't. As we ponder just how much Harry's fortune is worth. Just $40. As we guess how much mileage one gets out of an Ollivander wand. 100,000 jinxes. As we detail the ins and outs of Hogwarts Castle. It's only a model. Join us Monday through Friday, only from DuelingGenre.com. Mischief Managed. Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joseph Jarowski. And this week we are discussing Gilbert Norrell, or Norrell, and Jonathan Strange from the television miniseries Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Before we get into that discussion, listeners, we would like to share some exciting news for the Protagonist Podcast family, and that involves producer Andrew. Uh, my wife had our baby. Yay! Yay! <laughs> she... Cue fanfare. <laughs> yeah, she, she did a great job, and it was... <laughs> It was, you it was around only, the whole way. <laughs> what yeah. did you do? Just, it was, uh, you know, <laughs> 10 hours of labor from, from like, I think we're in labor and need to go to the hospital to baby in hand. Yeah. So that go. was, that was pretty efficient. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, we have her now and she is elsewhere away <laughs> from the, from the studio. Yeah. She was, uh, born a few weeks ago, but we had backlogged knowing that this was imminent. Yes. We, 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 had... we, we, you could say we had roughly nine months to prepare. <laughs> yes. We, uh, <laughs> we had prepared several, uh, episodes that would be ready to go so that we could take a few weeks off. And this is our first time recording since the new baby has arrived. And boy, is it good to be back. <laughs> yes. It, it was, it felt like a long break. It, it, I, I feel like it was three weeks of not recording. It was really only two. I think we, we took two full weeks off. Man. Um, but also, my wife and I, since we do the Disney Animation Minute Essentials podcast as well, we've been off of podcasting from that one. And so I've had so much less podcasting in my life, <laughs> and it's been really weird. If only there was something to fill that void. <laughs> if only. <laughs> so uh, so what do, you, what do you think about fatherhood so far? Uh, I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> You're going to stick with it. You're not sending it back. Yeah. Uh, okay. No, she's like, this baby is so perfect and adorable. And, That's awesome. Uh, we are, we are very pleased and she's been super healthy and uh, gaining weight at an appropriate rate and, <laughs> and everything. So there's so many things that you don't realize are going to be stressful about like being a, a new parent. Okay. <laughs> things like tracking the baby weight, tracking yesterday, the baby schedule. Yesterday. So, well, I guess it was since before yesterday, there was like a 36 hour window where the baby didn't poop. Oh, and it was really stressful. And the baby was obviously in some discomfort um, and like not sleeping great. But like the discomfort that Kestra and I were feeling was fairly significant. Talking to the and nurse then, on the line. And... and then last night. <laughs> oh, no, we didn't. We didn't have to call because we had talked to the doctor about like, like how, how long is too long? He's like. It could be four days. <laughs> we're like, <laughs> and so yeah. So we're waiting. We're at like thirty six hours. And we're like, this feels like so long. Like, ugh, like how bad is this? And then at some point last night, baby pooped. <laughs> and I suspect we're probably not the first parents that ever cried at their baby's poop. 
but <laughs> so much relief. But it was an emotional moment, oh, and man. our baby also really loves to poop, especially when she doesn't have a diaper on. <laughs> oh <laughs> yes, that's fun. Yeah, so in that situation, um, <laughs> yeah. But then she also really loves to cross her ankles and bend her knees, so we have to like balance that that combo <laughs> so she doesn't drop her feet in there. Oh man! Oh man! That's yeah. Awesome. Baby diaper changing. They wave their knee like their foot goes straight into it. Everybody's like, no, stop. <laughs> yeah. When when Kestra and I are both on hand, uh, one of us holds the legs up <laughs> to to keep them uh, feces free. <laughs> that's, that's always yes. a good goal in life: feces free feet. Uh, I still remember one of the strangest feelings of my life was with, with our firstborn when we left the hospital. Because when you're in the hospital, there's constant monitoring and care, mm-hmm. and nurses are popping in and they're taking all these readings. And then it's like, okay, it's time for you to go. And you, like, step out and you kind of look around. Like, is anyone, anyone going to come with us? Anyone gonna actually, check? like, got us all the way to the car. Oh, okay. And, like, checked that we got the car seat. I was like, once we're out of the maternity ward, we were on our own. So, like, go, we, go we find a, your car. We had a very good nurse uh, who, who got us all the way to the car. <laughs> we had our last baby at home and with a midwife. And she... I was going to say, deliberately or not? <laughs> yeah. Well... Kind of. I mean, it's a it's a, a longer story than this is uh, th- than time affords us. But um, it was nighttime, and we had the baby, and then they just put the baby in my arms, and they were like working with my wife, and I was like, "What am I supposed to do with this thing? <laughs> like, it was <laughs> this brand new baby." And uh, so I like, just kind of stood there. off, or no, oh. no, because okay. because we were in the living room, and so <laughs> so then. <laughs> Then uh, the the one one of the midwives like she says okay well let's go in the kitchen so we go in the kitchen like turn on the kitchen sink and give the you know like hose off the baby <laughs> and then and then we wrapped him up and we and they're like hey just go to bed and we were like uh okay and so we went to bed and we woke up in the morning and like the house was clean and at, like these ladies had done this amazing anyway they just had like cleaned up everything and then left and I woke up and I was like. Oh my gosh! There's a there's a baby right here. <laughs> it was uh, that's a, that's a crazy, it's a crazy experience. All right, but today we are here to discuss the seven part miniseries that aired on the BBC in 2015, titled Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell. And this was adapted from the debut novel by Susanna Clarke, and uh, that novel was a bestseller. Uh, all of the episodes of the miniseries were written by Peter Harness and directed by Toby Haynes. And Bertie Carvel plays Jonathan Strange, and Eddie Marson plays Gilbert, Gilbert Norrell. And this is the story of two men who tried to restore magic to England after it has disappeared for 300 years. And we are actually only going to be focusing on the first episode that was titled The Friends of English Magic. Are there, are there, is, is this a single book that's not a series or anything? It, from what I understand, uh, this was her debut novel and she has not published a sequel to it. She published some short stories that were set in this world before the novel came out, though. Like, she got some publishing through short stories and it was always set in this world. It Kinda totally this begs book for now. It begs for yeah. more. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it, it's not the only thing that was begging for more at the end of the series. Yeah. So, awesome. how did, so, uh, how did you come to this, uh, miniseries, Todd? This. It started showing up probably a year ago in my Netflix, um, like recommendations. And I, I, I put it off for a while. Like I was just never in the mood for whatever the, you know, the cover 
art was. <laughs> it's like, I, I suppose that that could be interesting. And, you know, they look like a couple of interesting English gentlemen, but I just never felt in the mood. And then one day I thought, okay, fine, I'm going to, you know, see what this is about. And then I was so, so hooked. After one episode, I just blew through it all really fast. And, uh, and I thought we've got to talk about this. And I think October is a perfect time for it. I agree with that. I remember hearing about the novel a lot, and I still haven't read the novel. And I'm sure there's so much more to the story that's in the novel, which is apparently massive. <laughs> it's a, a very long <laughs> novel. Uh, and I, I do aim to, uh, to get, get to that. But I remember this airing on, I think it was, began airing on BBC America, and I set it to record. And then I can't remember why, but we, uh, we decided to switch down the cable package to save money. I, I you know, and I had the first episode. <laughs> Of, of this and i watched it and i thought that was pretty awesome and then i had to forget about it until you said we should do that on the podcast and i was like great i now have a reason to go rent it and then you said it was on netflix i was like even better <laughs> so i will just watch it all on netflix though i didn't uh even though we've been on hiatus and i knew this was the next thing we were talking about i did not watch it until this week <laughs> like i could have taken that hiatus time to digest all seven hours of this show that's and, what i was uh, doing during the hiatus and and write a very in-depth summary of the entire seven part series uh but i finished it this week and then i thought i could summarize the whole thing and i just i started and i was like nope it's gonna be one episode and so listeners we're gonna give you a taste of this fantastic seven-part series by talking about the first episode and then i invite you to go watch the whole thing though i imagine it's going to be hard for us to not drop hints about some future events in the series yeah. in, in the course of this discussion. Uh, again, this is available on Netflix. I'm sure if it's not available on Amazon Prime for streaming, you could rent it on Amazon uh, or uh, DVD sets from local libraries, I'm sure, exist. Yep. You mentioning uh, dropping hints about the the full series reminded me uh, part of the new new parenting life is the waking up at odd hours. And I have had some weird dream retentions as I wake <laughs> up, and I've said some funny things to my wife. And last night, uh, after we finished watching the the last of the series, as she was nudging me awake because I needed to go uh, warm up some baby food, she said, um, apparently, I said, no, it's okay. The dark vortex is going away. <laughs> <laughs> Which, without context, seems like a really odd thing. But... <laughs> If you've seen the series, you you understand some of that. But that wow. is what was on my mind in the middle of the night last night. Wow. That's amazing. Okay, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening, and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. It makes this show possible. If you would also like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month, and all supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quickcasts which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And I'd just like to thank um, our new patrons. We have uh, had a little uptick uh, recently in patrons. And uh, welcome aboard. And thank you for joining and yes. supporting us. We appreciate all our patrons. It is amazing. <laughs> to have some support for that. When we started this, we just thought some family members might listen. Maybe. <laughs> we didn't know how this experiment would go. And so to have any support at all is just really heartwarming for us. Yes. Are you ready for uh, for your synopsis? You know, just real quick, there was a little bit of trivia oh, that for I it. forgot to share. Uh, as I said, this was a debut novel for uh, Susanna Clark. 
and it was published in 2004, and she began writing it in 1992. So any listeners Whoa. who are plugging away at that manuscript, keep going. You never know. Wow. <laughs> when? <laughs> when it'll go. Uh, and it became a bestseller. Uh, it reached number three on the New York Times list uh, after it was published. But it was um, Bloomsbury who uh, bought the rights to it and were going to publish it. And they were so confident that it was going to be successful that the initial print run was 250000 which is a wow. huge print run in publishing. Uh, but it did pay off. And I'm just going to list some of the awards it won. Can I just say, like... Number three is not bad. I haven't read the novel, but if it's as good as this series or better, it should have been higher up on that list. And I feel like there's a vast collection of Harry Potter people who could just probably enjoy this, right over. Enjoy this yeah. novel as it's like Harry Potter, but we know you're 30 now <laughs> and, and you're ready to deal with this on a different level. Yeah. Um, okay, just uh, here are a list of uh, some of the awards it won. It was Time's Best Novel of the Year. It was uh, nominated for the Nebula Award. It won the Hugo Award for Best Novel. It won the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel. It won the Locust Award for Best First Novel. It won, and I've never heard of this one, Mythopoeic Award for Adult Literature. It also won the British Book Award for Newcomer of the Year. We should keep closer tabs on those awards. Because I feel like they're probably being given to really good literature that I would like to be reading. <laughs> yeah. Turns out winning awards might be an indicator of quality. At least at least in the literary yeah. world. It's not all politics, everyone. It's not just who you know. Um, if we have completely, right? Yes. Yeah, you got to know someone, I guess. Uh, if, if we uh, haven't said already... Uh, this is a period piece. So as we're talking about this, just imagine fabulous British costumes during the Napoleonic War. Is that take it the right war? Yeah. 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 Cause, cause, uh, one of the episodes takes place at Waterloo. That's correct. All right. So here's the full synopsis of the very first episode of this great series. At a meeting of the Learned Society of York Magicians. Great name for a group. Oh, There's some good names all throughout. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Character names and organization names. Susanna Clark nailed it. Uh, so at the meeting of the Learned Society of York Magicians, a young and enthusiastic new member named Mr. Segundus asks why there's no magic done in England anymore. You see, this meeting is of a theoretical magicians who study the history of English magic, but they do not practice it. It has not been practiced in 300 years. The Learned Society of York Magicians laugh at Segundus's suggestion that magic could be done today as it had been done in the past. Segundus, after this, he goes out and he tries to buy every book about magic that he can, but even ones that he has reserved end up getting bought by someone else before he can get his hands on them. So he sneakily discovers who's buying the books, and he tracks down a Mr. Norrell. Segundus asks Mr. Norrell if he can truly do magic. He senses there's something different about Norrell than the other theoretical magicians with whom he has interacted. And Norrell says, oh yeah, <laughs> I totally can. Uh, the And Segundus goes back to the Learned Society of York Magicians and reports this, but they don't believe he can. And so a challenge is arranged. On an appointed night, the society goes to the York Cathedral. Norrell's servant, Mr. Childermans, I think, is, did I get that right? I don't know. I think it's Childermass. 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 Mess. I feel like I feel like four different characters say it four different ways. Yeah, and at a certain point, his name started to get said, and I was like, "Who is that?" It's <laughs> Childer. It's Childermass. Childermass. Okay. Norrell's servant, Mister Childermass, makes everyone sign a contract. If Norrell cannot perform the magic, he uh, Norrell will never claim to be a magician again. But if he can, 
the society must stop claiming to be magicians, <laughs> even th theoretical ones. Uh, and everyone signs except for Segundus, because Segundus says, magic is my life. I can never give it up, even if I see magic performed, which is what I hope to see. Uh, in the cathedral, Norrell makes all of the statues come alive, much to the shock of the society, except for Segundus, who is quite excited <laughs> about all of this. <laughs> Now we cut to the British countryside, where Jonathan Strange is going to meet the love of his life, Arabella. Arabella likes Jonathan well enough, but she will not marry him because he has no vocation. Strange would be fine getting a job, and has actually tried to do it several times. Uh, but his father won't allow him to have any support in getting the job, and the couple jobs he's tried he hasn't been very good at, <laughs> so he doesn't last very long. Uh, side note, his father is rather awful, but fortunately, his father dies very soon. <laughs> after we meet him after like, we establish he's there long enough to establish this is one of the worst human beings ever to walk the earth and then he dies and we're like that's okay <laughs> uh, now that's exactly Jonathan... what happens that really is exactly what happens <laughs> like, like it's one scene after the other <laughs> yes but now Jonathan Strange is going to be running the estate he has a vocation and he wonders how long he's supposed to act as though he's mourning before he goes to court Arabella <laughs> and he decides three days three days is probably enough <laughs> A month? Uh, Two weeks? Three days? <laughs> Norell moves to London. So he did this big miracle in York, and everyone is talking about the miracle at York. And he, uh, Norell decides it's time to restore the respectability of English magic. And he, he goes to London to offer his services to the government during this time of war. He wants to uh, both establish magic's uh, reputation as being a good and reputable pursuit, and also help in the war effort. On his entry into London, he looks at a street magician, a really raggedy and gross-looking one, who is yelling something about uh, the Raven King. Norell goes to visit Sir Walter Paul who's the Secretary of War for the British government. And he alludes, uh, Pohl alludes to having heard of Norrell's tricks in York that made housewives very happy. And Norrell's like, what? What in the world are you talking about? And we find out that uh, somehow along the way, rumors spring up that Norrell would wash all the linens every night yeah, using his, magic. His, his magic could do laundry. <laughs> and Norrell is like very insulted. He's like, I made statues come alive. Like, like 40 of them. <laughs> Uh, Poles says that tricks are all well and good, but they have no place in battle. It's not respectable. And he is dismissive of Norrell. Poles' fiance is there and she has a bad cough. I saw, I was looking up some, some reactions to this and someone <laughs> referred to her cough in, uh, in this opening scene or the scene where we first meet her as a check of gun that is waiting <laughs> to go off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One might call it a fatal cough. <laughs> yes, <laughs> potentially. Uh, Norrell is dismissed, and he really wants to just now go home and be with his books of magic. He wants to take his books and go home. Not his ball and go home. He just wants to take his books yes. and go home. Uh, his goal of restoring magic to respectability has been shot down before it even had a chance to begin. Before he leaves London, though, Norrell's servant insists that they go to a party being thrown in his honor by... Uh, is, is it Drawn Light? That... Draw Light. Draw Light. Draw Christopher Draw Light. Christopher Draw Light. Oh, the, the, that name is so good. Drawlight. Yes. Uh, Norrell does not want to be there. <laughs> but he goes, and at the party, Drawlight introduces him as Mr. Norrell. <laughs> he always chills the R on Norrell. <laughs> and it is fantastic. And he says Norrell is here to perform some tricks. Instead, though, Norrell runs out a back door to a back alley. He kind of disappears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's a the trick. The thing that I love... The thing that I love about Drawlight is when we first hear him, he's bragging to everyone about how well he knows Nor Norrell. 
and uh, how they they've been discussing all these things, and they're like super best friends. And and Norrell sneaks into the side room, and then Drawlight comes in with his friend, and he's talking all about Norrell, and Norrell's there, and <laughs> and Drawlight has no idea that this is really yeah. like when he sees him, he's like, "Who are you?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also and, love. Um, and then he says, "I am I am Mr. Norrell," and immediately Drawlight. Like he doesn't, he doesn't skip a beat, and and he he says, "Oh, it's so good to see you. I I hadn't recognized you in the light, or you know something like that." And he also says, "I have been acting as John the Baptist for John you, John the Baptist, <laughs> yes. Yes. preparing your way, and, and, and Mr. Norrell, and, and Mr. Norrell has no idea who this guy is. He's like, <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't know he's the host of the party. Yeah, it's like, like I've never spoken to you. <laughs> yeah." I also so love good. how uh, demonstrably uncomfortable that party looks. Yes, <laughs> like, like I don't feel I I don't blame Mister Norrell for for feeling ill at ease. Yes. Anyway, uh, so Norrell he runs away <laughs> from this party, uh, and he escapes to a back alley. And that street conjurer who had stared at Norrell earlier is waiting for him. Uh, the street magician yells a prophecy at him. I think it's a good way to describe that uh, about two magicians who are going to restore English magic, but that they would be enemies. Uh, Children Mass, uh, he hears about this and he goes to confront that street magician, wondering is there something more going on here. Uh, the next day, and uh, he tries to read the magician's fate with a deck of cards uh, like tarot reading uh, but then the street magician takes the deck from Childermass and lays out uh, his fate and he reveals a deck full of the Raven King which freaks out Childermass because he made the deck himself and there's only one king card in the entire deck uh, Norel I is love pouting. that scene oh it's so good and when I say uh, well what makes it awesome is it's not the Raven King on every single card it's uh, the king and there's the smudge on top of his scepter, that, that every time, time he flips he... over a new card, the smudge gets a tighter definition until on the last card, it's clearly a raven. Uh, so but as he's cool. flipping over the cards, it's like a, it's almost like a little animation going along. Yeah. So Norrell is now pouting about how little anyone understands his magic. Uh, when word comes from, uh, uh, Drawlight that Paul's fiance, who had the coughing fits, has passed away. Norrell prepares, uh, he, he, he debates briefly, like, should I? do magic here and then he decides i should do magic and restore her to life though it is very dark magic and the kind of magic that is not respectable and he does not want anyone to ever do this magic but he's going to do it just this once and there won't be any consequences anyone because it's just once because so that he's, he's doing it just once <laughs> and he's just going to establish the reputation of magic again this is what it takes to get the magic foot in the door uh, we cut back to Jonathan Strange, and he is now riding along on his horse when he comes across, uh, a drunk <laughs> lying in a ditch. And it happens to be that same enigmatic street magician. Uh, who, who had basically, like, disappeared from Childermass. Yes. And apparently appeared. Here in the fields. Yeah. Far away. Uh, he jumps up and he makes a prophecy to Strange. And it's a prophecy that may sound familiar to anyone who has been watching this hour of television. It regards two magicians who are going to restore magic uh, to England. Uh, this street magician then sells Strange a couple spells and leaves. Strange goes and he meets up with the love of his life, Arabella, and he tells her that he has a new vocation. He's going to be a magician. Everyone laughs. <laughs> so he tries out one of the two spells that he bought. It is meant to reveal what his enemy is doing. After casting the spell, Strange looks in the mirror and he sees Norrell sitting in a chair reading, though nobody knows who this man is and they assume it's a banker. <laughs> <laughs> 
and a final uh, scene of the episode, Norrell goes to Paul's house and asks to see the recently deceased fiancé. He summons a fairy to help him. When I say fairy, though, I don't want you to imagine Tinkerbell. That is not the proper <laughs> image. This is a more of a demonic aristocrat with eyebrows like arched cotton balls and hair like cotton candy. Oh, man. Uh, he is so cool. His presence and his in, in this first appearance, his his coat is like made of leaves. Leaves, yeah. It looks like sewn together leaves. Yeah, it's it's a uh, great appearance. Uh, this fairy makes a deal. He will bring her back if Norrell promises that he will have a token of the deal and also half of her remaining life. Norrell assumes that if she were to live another 75 years, which I'm thinking is a pretty generous lifespan in this day and age, but he says, well, if she lived 75 more years, half of those years would be better than being dead now. So he agrees to give the fairy half of her remaining life. Uh, and the fairy brings her back to life, though he severs one of her fingers as the token that is going to represent their deal. She rises, dancing and happy to be back again, and she does not care that her finger is missing, and a wondering Sir Walter Pole sees that his fiancée has been brought back to life by magic. The end. Oh, man. And then it starts getting really, really good. Like, like I just, like, I almost only want to talk about everything else that happens. No, I think this is a really strong episode. Like, this is a great episode in and of itself, but it goes in so many directions from here that you don't see coming. Like, because of the prophecy, I think, and I, I know I did, like, you get in your head, there's gonna be warring magicians. That's not what happens. That's not really what's going on. <laughs> That's not what happens at all. Uh, I mean, I guess there's a little publishing war. Spoiler. Oh, <laughs> but... I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it's not it's not like these uh, strange and normal are going to be like Harry Potter and Voldemort, you know, yeah. at opposite ends of a spectrum as they go forward. It's, it's just really it's, fascinating to watch the politics that play out, the way the war gets played, out, like the the Napoleonic War gets played out, the way the history overlays uh, the 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 fiction of this. It's a wonderfully crafted story. Can, can if, I add? If that one I, episode sounded interesting, though, I'd go watch all seven. Mm-hmm. I, and I would say, yeah, please do. I would just add two things, and I hope they're not too spoilery. I don't want to ruin the whole thing for everybody, but... If, if the, you're at all worried about it, pause now and, and go watch and come back. Well, I would just week. say, in the... Well, I think it. I think this may be necessary for our conversation, but in the next episode, we'll see Strange show up in London to become Norrell's uh, apprentice and i think that that like yeah I, I don't I think we're spoiling that's anything pretty there. yeah yeah that's fair but um and the thing that's interesting about them is that uh norrell has learned how to be a practical magician by reading books lots and lots and lots and lots of books and like he, a, he has all of the books in all of england probably well this is amazing magic. the when when you see the the york society of magicians at the beginning and they say they make some reference. Uh, oh, I think it's Segundus makes a reference to their vast library, and there's four books in on a shelf, <laughs> and that's their whole library. About and then when Segundus goes to Norrell's house, and he walks into Norrell's library of of magical books, and it it's like the Beauty and the Beast library. I mean, it's just it's but just it's all all, all, all the magical books. Well, that... And also they they make a different uh, like Segundus makes the differentiation. There are books about magic, and that he's read every one he can get his hands on. And then he looks around Norrell's library, and he says. These are magic books. Like this is books about how to do magic. Books not, of magic. Yeah, books spells. Of like magic. magic of magic, not books about dead magic. Yeah. Whereas, whereas, like the society had like one ripped and crinkled page with one spell on it. <laughs> yes. And so Norrell, Norrell has taught himself by reading all of these books, 
uh, and he's an amazing scholar. And because he's the best scholar, then he is the best magician. And then Strange comes along and is able to do magic without ever having read a book. And and has this like innate sense uh, for magic that Norrell doesn't He's an intuitive have. magician. Uh, yeah, he, right. did, he described it as um, knowing music. Cool. Like, you can understand how music goes even if you don't actually know the theoretical concepts behind music. Or, or like you can begin a song in your head and you will finish it in your head. That's what he does mm-hmm. with magic. Like it, it right. starts and he knows intuitively how to finish it. And so and I think that, that differentiation is key to us being able to talk about these two characters. Yes, yeah. that's that that was what I wanted to say. Yeah. And I don't think that's a, a, a spoiler for upcoming plot or anything. Right. Ultra power ultra powerful uh strange. I keep wanting to call him Doctor Strange. Jonathan Strange. Yeah. <laughs> Ultra powerful Jonathan Strange. Yeah. And and so yeah. you get Steven and Strange. I'm like, no, they're not And there's magic. <laughs> yeah, so you have ultra powerful but but no education, Jonathan Strange. And you have ultra educated but but really very little natural ability, uh, Mr. Norrell. And that dynamic between them I think is what really drives most of the interesting things in this show. Yes, uh, and I think it's um, like it's, uh, let's go ahead and start talking about some of the differences uh, between these it. two characters that we already see in this first episode. And I, 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 in talking about the, the characteristics of them, I don't think we'll be spoiling plot that happens in the subsequent six hours of the miniseries. And this is one of those miniseries where like literally every episode is one hour. I'm not saying like one hour of of TV time with 22 minutes of commercials or anything. No, it, yeah. it's like it's like 56 minutes. Yeah. Um, but Norrell is like you said, he's academic, he's scholarly, and he has no charisma right (laughs) like he is like you see him and you're like that's a magician and and like they make jokes about this throughout the entire time like when uh rumors of his miracle at york are going around he is illustrated in the newspaper and he sees the illustrations like he's wearing a pointed hat and has a beard and this is like the most bland looking british aristocrat with a with a wig that's kind of like it's a it's a powdered wig but it's not an ostentatious powdered wig it's it's just a powdered yeah, wig just, just flat on his head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't even fit him right. Like, most yeah. of the time you can see his other hair, like, hanging and out from underneath it. It's skew. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how tall would you say he is, probably? Oh, he's very <sighs> short. He's, he's definitely short. Yeah. Like, uh, and I don't mean this as, like, like five a the actor. But he re- like, when I see him, I think, if they ever did a live-action Adventures of Mr. Toad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, he could play. <laughs> he could play I, Mr. Toad in The Wind in the Willows. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's he's a small, unassuming fellow. Yeah. And then you get uh, Jonathan Strange. Like, like well, one last thing for, for Mr. Norrell. Uh, his servant, uh, Childermass, ha- strikes more po- imposing and magical figure than, than Mr. Norrell yes. does. Yeah. Oh, oh definitely. Uh and then we get Jonathan Strange, who is like he's taller, his hair is crazy, like, but he also oozes way more charisma and uh energy mm-hmm. than, than we ever get get from Norrell. Just like walking across the room, he's expending more energy than we see when Mr. Norrell is doing grand magic. <laughs> I think it's interesting that when we when we very first meet Norrell and he's talking with Segundus, I feel like that is when we see him at his most confident. At the very beginning, when uh, he says, "Yes, I, I do do practical magic," and and you know, I'll do a demonstration, and like it's time for this, and you're like, "Yeah, this guy, he's great." And then you see Jonathan Strange, and all that's just by the fact that he exists, Norrell seems like less, and Norrell knows it, and the and the actor does such a great job of expressing like his discomfort at 
at Strange's ability to to do magic, mm-hmm. and it's just uh, like to see the way that these characters change over the course of these seven episodes is like astounding. It's so and good. The, the acting's great uh, for both of them. Like Mr. Norrell does a great job of playing this character. Yeah, he embodies um, that reserve, but at the same time that he is playing it so reserved, the actor does a really good job of communicating that there is frustration. Yeah, there's <laughs> a there lot is, going on. That there, that there is um, like academic rigorous thought happening in behind his eyes, even as he's just standing there next to his bookcase. Like there, somehow you you feel there's more happening than what you're seeing. Uh, but there's this wonderful contrast uh, of the physicality of these two characters that are on the screen and everything that gets um, thematically rolled into the, the their different appearances. Uh, it's just um, the combination of the actors and the set dressing and the costuming and the directing. Like it really does make these characters feel so so vivid uh, as you as you're watching it. And I feel like like every every gesture. Every look, every glance matters in this. Like, there's no, mm-hmm. there's never a wasted second uh, of of this film, and it's not like it's so incredibly fast paced, but it's just <laughs> so carefully done that it works really well. And I, one thing I'm just realizing, thinking about like performance notes from Mr. Norrell and and Jonathan Strange, there's times where both of them are stuttering or stumbling over words and it's for completely different reasons mm-hmm. for Jonathan Strange is because he's excited or almost agitated by his excitement and energy. And Mr. Norrell, it's because he's sort of uncomfortable because they've actually asked him to do practical stuff that he's only studied. And, and he's sort of excited, but mostly he's like, well, well, yes, I can do that. But I guess. <laughs> yeah. And so like the same tick, this stutter is there for both of them for completely different reasons. Right. That's cool. But That's on, on the page, you would say, like, maybe their lines would, they, they might be saying the same word with the same, you know, stutter built into it, but the execution of it is completely different. I want to talk a little about, uh, Norrell's pride, which it struck me at, like, how interestingly it gets played. Cause I think pride is actually a pretty big motivator for his the, actions that the, we see during, during this. The series. prophecy says, um, the character of one will be arrogance and the character of the other will be yeah. fearfulness. And I could never really tell who was supposed to be who. I agree with that. I, th- I'm so glad that you brought this up because the very next question that I was going to say is what are Norrell's motivations? Because I think he's a fascinating guy. There's, just, there's a lot going on with him. Uh, and as I was thinking about this very thing, like what came to me was pride, but it, it's, it's not, it's not exhibited in the way we traditionally associate with pride. Like he does not want to be the center of attention. Right. Uh, he, he is very uncomfortable at those parties where really, like, if this was our typical portrayal of someone with arrogance, that party where it's all about him would be like the greatest moment of his life. <laughs> like all the aristocracy yeah. is there to praise me and he cannot stand that. But he still wants desperately to be known as the greatest English magician and, <laughs> and to be and the master. Believes, and he believes it. Yeah. And to be the master of English magic. And that everyone knows his name means that, but he doesn't want necessarily the fame. He wants the the reputation, I guess. It, does that make sense? That mm-hmm. that difference. Uh, but he also is very concerned, and I think part of his pride is tied into because he's so identified with it. But he's very concerned about the reputation of magic. Yes, and that magic magic doesn't get misused or abused or be thought of as parlor tricks mm-hmm. like this washing is the... the linen for the housewives of York. <laughs> It's like he he has he has a he has two great conflicts and I think you've just spelled them out. So 
the one conflict is that he wants desperately to be known, and yet he also wants desperately to be left alone. Yes. And <laughs> and how do you reconcile those two things? And and they're it, they're they're not reconcilable. And so he's just constantly uh, has this angst about about what to do about this. And then on the other hand, he he knows or he feels the burden and the responsibility to bring magic back. He recognizes the danger of this black magic of uh, summoning fairies. And yet he does in his very first, like he recognizes that the only way that he can do the thing that he wants to do is to do the thing that he knows he must not do. And he has to live with the burden of that for, I mean, that, that this is the original sin of the, of the story that drives the rest of the, of the plot for the next seven episodes is the fact that he, he broke the one rule that he knew he could not break. He, and he had to break it in order to set in motion this thing that he knew that he wanted to do to get what he didn't really want. But he knew, but he, it's like this poor guy is just this bubbling cauldron of contradictions. And you feel it every time you see him that he just is so uncomfortable. And, and yeah, there's it, no way it's out. It's played with such reserve. I love how it gets so played. Good. So would you guys, when you take the, like the prophecy talking about one of the magicians will be arrogant and one will be fearful. Do you take well, Mr. Norrell to be the arrogant one? Cause that's how I take it. Yeah. But at the same, I mean, you definitely could say he's fearful of like, like the his, mistake his he's made is also and, fearful. and he's fearful of allowing strange to do anything that's going to approach the fairy magic. Like mm-hmm. fairy magic is, is the do not cross out. And so he, uh, like he is the one that is warning against this, and Jonathan Strange is the one that says, "Well, we we gotta do what we gotta do." <laughs> <Let's>, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you can absolutely uh, read that prophecy both ways, a hundred percent. I don't, I don't know that they're which is which is really impressive because <laughs> I, I watched this entire series like trying to figure out I'm like, which one are they saying is which. Yeah, and 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 every time I like think about it, I'm like, well, no, well. No. <laughs> yes. I mean the 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 thing about arrogance and fear I think is in reference directly to the Raven King. And in that case there's a there's a case to be made that says that Jonathan Strange is the one who is fearful. He's the arrogant one. Oh, I would oh. say that he's the one that's fearful because <laughs> I was going to say he's he's the arrogant one in regards to the Raven King. Fearful in the sense of like like that you fear God, like that he he rec- I mean, he he says, "I feel like I'm, I'm I'm in a seminary, and they won't let us talk about God." Like he he knows he understands how important the Raven King is to English magic, and and would want to like bow at the feet of the Raven King if he could, <laughs> but Nora won't let him because because uh, because of Nora's arrogance, but also because of Nora's fear, and uh, so I I just I don't think that. I don't think there's but a way you can read to say strange that one is one as, and the other is the other. Yeah, because you can read Strange as being the arrogant one because he wants to go beyond the mark that his master is setting for him. Right. And he says, I, I can do this. I've got this skill um, to do that. And I think when it comes to fantasy stories in the fantasy genre, to really nail a prophecy correctly and make it satisfying, <laughs> it needs to either be this, where it's like so enigmatic, you can spin yourself around in circles mm-hmm. trying but to solve it. But, it, but it doesn't feel like anything's wrong. Like, it's not that there's something wrong with it, it's yeah. that so much of it feels right, that right. it's frustrating to try and, and so right, or the prophecy needs to like, feel like it was laid out and then there's a twist where suddenly you, you look back and everything that made sense actually now makes sense in a different way. When yeah. it's too straightforward... Which this also does. Yeah, but it, when it's too straightforward, 
it's like, well, what's the, like, you've just like laid out the roadmap for the entire story. <laughs> there's, right. no, there's no surprises. <laughs> or if it's like, well, no, prophecies don't really matter. It's like, well, why did you even include it in the story then? <laughs> yeah. And so I, I like the way where this one lands on the, the use of prophecy in the fantasy genre and spectrum. They don't really bring up this prophecy. Um, like they don't recite it constantly throughout no. the series. I think it's only said th- these two times in this first episode. Um, and Norrell in, in, in entirety. Yes. No, Norrell, <laughs> Norrell's not a fan of it. Yeah, Norrell he, well, hates, he hates it. prophecy. Right. And Strange is... He hates prophecy. He straight, hates street, street magicians. I know. You know. It's just so full of everything that he hates. He feels... I feel so bad for Norrell. So bad for him. But then also, uh, like, his arrogance. He's just as so arrogant about about everything and it's just a hot it's it's all a it's an inferiority complex totally as soon as he meets yeah. strange he knows this guy is so much more powerful than i am and but the he, only but thing he also that i does can... still get he gets excited about the opportunity to like have yeah. someone else yes. so it, he's yeah, he conflicted does. about that too yeah and, <laughs> exactly. and he loves see, like he does. He does like seeing strange do magic the way he does magic yeah <laughs> like, like, he, like he was so excited the first time he saw it. he's like this is great magic. How did you How did you learn to do this? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> what? You know, but because he's so uh, intellectual, like he wants the theory behind it. And John's or uh, yeah, Strange is like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't have, have a theory. I have intuition. So let's talk a little about uh, Strange because I think we did a pretty good breakdown of Norrell and why he's okay. such a fascinating character. What is Strange's motivation? Do you think, Todd? Well, initially, it's it's uh, Arabella, right? And being with her. And it, s- small spoiler, ultimately. It's, it's Arabella. It is. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Towards the middle, maybe he loses sight of that. Yeah. I was going to say, I think the way it gets presented, it almost feels kind of like a schoolboy crush initially. And you... He, I, he is very juvenile. Like, he seems immature. Yes. Uh, and I think we could kind of say, like, this, this isn't real love. I mean, again, slight spoiler. Throughout the series, you realize, oh no, he's really in love <laughs> with <laughs> with her, like legitimately, in a way that you don't necessarily get from this first episode. I, I like what you said. Like, there's this juvenile or immature aspect to yeah. the way that he talks about her and the way he acts in trying to court her. The whole series probably takes place across a few years. Mm-hmm. It's certainly at least a few months because there's months between episodes in some oh, yeah. cases. Yeah, yeah. There's there's definitely some passage of time. Well, there's there's at least three months between just the first and the second episode. The thing that's interesting about Strange is, on the one hand, he is driven by this desire to be with Arabella, but I think that he's also re- genuinely excited about the fact that he's found something that he's really good at. And and we're told at the beginning, just example after example after example of things that he's failed at. And <laughs> Arabella tells him, "You you tried this and this and this. You can't hold a job." I'm sorry. I'm trying to remember what some of them were. I remember one was he bought a smelting plant, but then the fumes made him sick. (laughs) (laughs) And he... I was going to be a smelter. (laughs) He is this, like, strange mix, again, of of contradiction. So he's very strong. I mean, he looks looks tall and... And and strong, and he rides his horse and everything. But then he faints at the at the smell from the from the fumes, and he seems quite weak at times. And it's Arabella who bolsters him up. Um, but and then he goes and kind of begs to his father, "Can you please help me find a job?" And his dad says, "You're a total disaster. You'll never be good at anything." And then his dad dies, and he says, "Yes, I've got a job now. I can manage the estate." And Arabella says, you don't want to manage the estate. You you would be lousy at managing the estate. You're lousy at everything. And then he says, oh, yeah? Well, guess what? 
I'm a magician. You know? and, and she's like, he's too wait, he what? That day. <laughs> she's like, she's like, wait, what? And he says, yeah, I, uh, you know, I got these spells. You wanna, you wanna see some magic? And she's like, yeah, sure. And then he does it, and the light in his eyes when he does that magic trick, and he, and he goes, oh, I found something that I'm good at, and I think that, that- <laughs> he didn't know it was gonna work. Yeah, it was his very first time trying magic ever, right? <laughs> and it worked. And 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 to to see that contrasted with um. With Segundus, who's tried and tried and tried and tried and tried, and we see the the pile. He's trying to to do a spell to to combine unite thing something that's been broken in a similar kind yeah. of way with the bowl of water and the reflection. And there's lots of um, reflective surfaces in this. Uh, yeah, boy, I think, are there. I, I think reflections might be a theme yeah. of of this story. I think we call it a, a motif. Uh, yes, and so. So, but we see we see the the pile of broken things from Secundus uh, from Secundus trying to uh, trying to do the spell and and Strange on the first try gets it and and he 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 gets a, something out of that just the the feeling of power of doing that and you see it even more in the in the second episode when the there's a ship that's that's tipped over on its side and. <laughs> Um, oh, it's such a great, so so good. Like we we haven't really discussed. Like there are, the, so the only thing that Joseph specifically mentioned was the statues coming to life. But throughout the series, there are a number of really amazing displays of magic. Yeah, yeah. and kind of surprising. It, it, those those were surprising to me because it doesn't feel like a super effects heavy show. But when mm-hmm. they come up, you're like, whoa, that was yeah. awesome. That was amazing. And the thing that he does to write the ship is it's just such a display of like brute magical force. And, and, and you can tell that he's like intoxicated by his own ability to do this thing. But, but it's another one of those where like the acting is so on point to demonstrate this. He is so, like you said, intoxicated and pleased with himself, but he's trying to pass it off as though this was just nothing. Like this is, this is a, so, so he's walking everyday away. Event. He's like, yeah. Okay, let me say something about breakfast. Yes, as though this but, is just a but thing. you are able, like, unmistakably as a viewer, to see the layers that are being played yes. right then. Of Where, I am so full of myself, but I'm going to play this I've, casual. I've just done the most amazing thing I've ever done. Yeah, and, um, but I, I think those two things inside of him. So his love for Arabella and his desire to just be with her and be happy with her. Uh, on the one hand, and then this intoxication that he has with this, what seems like limitless power on the well, other. It, it, and those two I like things said in combination drive him, I think. I mean, yeah. they drive the story. Earlier you said, like, he's so excited to find something he's good at. It's like he's found his calling. And, yeah. he, and he wasn't, like, again, this character, sometimes you might uh, see it as, like, the arist- aristocratic fop who mm-hmm. doesn't do anything because they don't have to. Like, he's tried to find something yes. he's good at. <laughs> And, and he's failed. And in order to like uh, court Arabella, he he lists like the things he's done. Like in terms of both getting jobs, he's like, I also I will go to church twice a week if, <laughs> if you want. And I do not drink as much as I once did. Barely more than a bottle a day now. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've made such improvements for yes. you. So, uh, but but I, I think he, okay. I was going to say he, he feels like magic is his calling, and it's not just. Um, the intoxication of like doing do, of having power that no one else has. I think it's finding what he is really legitimately good at yeah. for someone who 
uh, was beaten down by his father. I, I mean, we, we get one scene with his father, but I'm comfortable saying probably beaten in every way imaginable yes. down by his father and broken down and told that he was worthless and couldn't accomplish anything. To find this thing, it's not just about having power that other men don't. It's finding what he is meant to do. I, th- I think there's probably something really interesting going on with his father. I mean, if we were to like dig into that, but I do have a question for both of you. And it's who do you find more sympathetic as a character, strange or Noral? Like, who do you most identify on... with? Who do you find? <laughs> it depends on the episode. <laughs> Would you say That's... the same thing, Andrew? I, that, that is really tough. I'm leaning towards, um, strange and it's related to a question that I wanted to ask you guys. Okay. And, um, yeah, I think I, I lean towards Jonathan Strange. Um, although I totally understand Mr. Norrell, but the, the two that like the, okay, Joseph's got something before I, I get into I mean, like the big dichotomy I wanted to bring up in defense of like identifying with Norrell. It's a man who wants to be alone with all his books. I think we can all agree <laughs> <Yeah>. that <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> on this podcast. And, and well, that's the thing. That- the reason that I bring up this question is because I feel like, you know, if 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 there were a, if it were a point system, that the points would be in favor of Strange, but I but then I think there are these amazing moments throughout the film, and some of them really at the end, and we can't talk about it because we would be spoiling way too much. But moments <laughs> like so much at the very end of the film that like brought me to tears watching this, or almost brought me to tears watching this, and where all of the sudden, like at the snap of a finger, my heart just like weeps for Norrell and mm-hmm. uh it's it's uh, it's just amazing i think it's so cool so the 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 comparison or or discussion point that i wanted to ask you guys has to deal with the way that it, again the way that they they learned magic and do magic and how strange's magic is so tied to his emotional state and mr norrell hardly ever and i mean he basically never does magic from an emotional state and, and hardly ever shows the emotional state. And so like, so it's very what, clinical. Yeah. What are they does. dealing with where, where you have like the logical and the emotional and, and both of them are effective at, at performing magic. And I mean, we, I, I think I would say that strange is probably more effective at using magic than normal overall, but uh, at least, at least for the displays we see, but, but I mean, at the but beginning one of the, of the most, second episode is, is a really powerful display. Um, of of a blockade that Norrell made out of water. Yeah. Norrell's really good with water. Yeah, <laughs> like rain magic is his thing. Yes, that's true. But after that, a lot of the more spectacular portrayals of magic are are, are Jonathan Strange. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And but um, but like also Jonathan Strange, like most of his more impressive stuff is brought on by like intense emotional distress. Yeah, absolutely. Um the 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 one at the end of the second episode riding the ship I think is based mostly he's really agitated cuz they woke him up. <laughs> I mean, but he's 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 agitated like he's really frustrated and yeah. and angry and he's like fine, I'll like I'll just do it. <laughs> um but then during the war it, it gets much more intense. Like he's he's yeah. traumatized by Yeah. the events of the war and that kind of fuels his his magic. I mean, in some ways it it kind of reminds me uh I mean so you got that dichotomy, but I think the, the other dichotomy that maybe leans in this direction as well, and maybe we can try and suss out how these are connected, but you get the Society of Theoretical Magicians versus the Practical Magician, Mr. Norrell. Mm-hmm. And so there's this kind of book, uh, uh, academic, uh, but when it comes theoretical, 
when it comes to the actual magic, the yeah. oral is the theoretical. Right. right. But, but so like you have this idea that we, we study it, we think about it, we don't actually do it. And he says, no, I actually do it. But then you have him still being very clinical, analytical, thoughtful about it. And then you have strange. He's like, well, no, I just feel it. <laughs> and, 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 uh, I, I can't explain it. Like it, it, it just spills out of me. Uh, mm-hmm. so it's always, it almost feels like there's, um, like a criticism versus the artist, like the critic versus the artist. Um, side of this that's explored in a couple different layers. Yeah. There's also moments where Strange like tries to do it calmly and it doesn't work and he gets frustrated and then it activates like uh-huh. it manifests from his frustration yeah. almost. I mean I think I think if we're if we're talking about these kind of two two ways of uh, learning isn't the right word. Uh, two like modes of mastery. Experiencing ways of mastering something. Maybe mm-hmm. that one is, yeah. uh, you know, you, you can study about something and practice it for a really long time and get good at it, or you can be a born natural at the thing. And but also you just kind of uh bull in a China shop where you're to gain experience. Right. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're just going to go in and start doing. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I haven't, I've thought about one, one half of this question, which is which of those is more powerful. And I think that this film would, or this series would come down on the side of that being, having the innate ability is more powerful than thinking your way through it more powerful, um, but yes, but, but not necessarily always better. Yeah. Because like there's strange certainly something- gets himself into quite a pickle later on. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's very much benefited by the things he learns from, from the books. Yes. I mean, th- there is, in some ways this is um, reminding me of some art that would have been not too timeline removed from this where like you get the the romantics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um who uh i i think the classic definition of the romantic poet it, i think it was coleridge who said like well art is the spontaneous overflow of emotion like it just hits you and it spills that, out that sounds like jonathan and strange. that is jonathan yeah. strange uh and then you have poe writing a, a little later but still in the romantic era but he writes his theory of composition where he says no art is Revision. It is planning. It is plotting. It's it is precision. questioning, pre- questioning every word choice. And he breaks down the way he wrote the Raven and this, and he and he goes over and over. And he's very much rebutting this idea of art as just emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he's saying no, it needs to be like you said, pre- precise uh, and thought out. And and you got to do the, do the work in order to produce something you know that that is going to have artistic merit. And um, I think we, because of the romantics, like that idea of the artist still holds sway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like this idea of the, of the artists who are touched by the muse, uh, and, and it's just come out. Uh, but I think for the reality of anyone who's engaging in an artistic endeavor, there's a lot of work and planning <laughs> and plotting, uh, that's gonna result in, in, uh, in reaching your goal. And I, one thing that I think is, like, maybe not the middle point, but a, compromise point between those two standards is that the gifted artists are going to have a natural tendency to find or somehow whether by by grit or by gift um produce that that precision um that post talking about like not everyone can do that just by working right at it. Like, i mean and, it's and kind of like you, the, you have um, to have some natural talent an- another reference uh the mozart and uh, uh in amadeus yeah salieri right. is yeah salieri guy. who who puts in all the work and understands all the musical theory but he can never produce anything the way mozart can it's exactly yeah, yeah that's exactly what's going on here i think and and yeah so there's there's definitely like 
there's merit to the study and there's merit to the innate talent, the intuitive nature of it. And when you combine those, you get the really, really good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, are there any of the side characters that you would be interested in talking about? Okay. Draw light. Of, okay, of course. Like, I just want to say the side characters have amazing voices. They like oh. just the the tone and the timbre of their voices. Segundus is so fascinating to hear talk and yeah. and draw lights. Mister Norel and, and, and he's just so mass. flamboyant. And Chil- yes, Chil- he's got is... like the Snape kind of drone. Yeah, like down, very very, low. very deep in the throat. Uh, and then the uh, the fairy. I can't remember the name of the fairy. He's just called the gentleman. Uh, he's, 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 he's called the gentleman. He's called the gentleman. In the, in the or credits. or the master of yeah. lost hope. I think, and I, I think yes. that one has some like some some post work done to to make his voice they, otherworldly, they give it an, right? An echoey, yeah. ethereal quality. But, but still, but he still has yeah. a, a delivery. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I mean, uh, going along with the voices, just the sound work in this series is. <gasps> I love so the creaking ship sound. The, it's all like all the walls creak when there's magic, and like a yeah. like a match lighting or a candle burning. The sound of a candle burning. Blowing out candles is a big thing. Out. Yes, but it, like every or sound when, is uh, you, 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 it's, There's the times where you almost hear the glass stretching in mirrors. And yes. I don't know how they do that sound, but like you know exactly so what that good. sound is when you hear it. And like, I don't think mirrors actually do that, but it sounds like the like, glass like is I, stretching. I know what I'm supposed to be <laughs> yeah. hearing here. Yeah, um, yeah there's, there's very good sound work. Because, and, because that's sort of, um, especially for the less impressive magic, that's your evidence that it's happening is yes. your hearing. Yeah. Uh, like the magic is causing something to go on in the atmosphere. And I think it's really significant that, I mean, this is a seven part miniseries. It's no small investment of time, but having the same director and cinematographers working together on every episode, yeah. I think was, was key to make this feel so I, complete. I can't imagine because there are so many mirrors all throughout the series. I can't imagine how hard that was to stage everything. So the yeah. cameras don't <laughs> show up, <laughs> keep huh. the cameraman out of it. <laughs> like that, the, the, just the sight lines, like they must've yeah. been working on that for days at a time to set up every scene. <laughs> and uh, and then along, I mean, as long as we're talking about the production, the, again, the makeup and I'm um, like the cut, the the street the costuming yeah the costuming and the makeup the street mu- the street magician I've got to say he smells dirty doesn't he <laughs> and even you're though only watching yes, it yes like when he is right in Norrell's face I'm like that breath must be oh, it's so oh, foul yes <laughs> even though we don't you know obviously you don't smell anything like it, it's a combination of the acting and the directing and the lighting and the uh, the performance it makes so you know funny. how bad this man smells and he touches Norrell's lip. <laughs> and it just, uh, and then when he no, just looks like, spit, like this, this oh, it's so good. It's just everything about this film is so carefully done, and, uh, and you you feel it. You feel you like you're in the environment. Totally uh, makes a difference. <laughs> it really does. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when we talked about Mean Girls, and we said, man, if you have acting and writing, and <laughs> like, it turns out you can make a pretty good film. Uh, <laughs> this one, the production, when you've got good design and yeah, the production values, and... it makes a difference on how something feels. <laughs> yeah. So I have another question. This is like a total one-off question, but um, Segundus, uh, you know Matt Meese from Studio C. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like Matt Meese could just you could just drop him into that costume, and it would be him. <laughs> Like, well, is, you'd have to take it in a little bit. Matt Meese is a <laughs> tiny man. I know, but but I I, I, but, I know. But 
You can see him perform right. that character. Oh, yeah. Listeners, if you are unfamiliar with Studio C, it is a comedy sketch, sketch group. They have had a couple uh, very viral videos, mm-hmm. uh, the most famous of which is probably Scott Sterling, in which Matt Meese, the man we're talking about, gets hit in the face over and over with a soccer ball during yes. a penalty kick. And it is <laughs> so funny. <laughs> it's fantastic. Okay, can we talk about the Mr. Norrell's two toadies? Draw Light and his friend, who I don't know I, what I don't that guy's name, name is. Uh, hang on, I've got it right here. Henry? His name they is... They always call him Henry, is that strange, it? Strange Lady Pole, Childermass, Vinculus, Draw Light, Lascelles. I think that's his name. Or Lascelles. Okay, what was it again? Hang on. Uh, I mean, this, Heffernan. These are... Both of them are kind of the definition of, like, the entourage who are clinging on to someone else who's going to be bigger than them. And they're just oh, hoping yeah. to get dragged along into greater fame and wealth and glory. And I, they don't even hide it. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> it's not like they're subtly oh. manipulating things to try and, and you know, just be at the right place at the right time. They're like, nope, you're going to be big. I'm coming with you. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying everything I can to be part of your your group. And I think it's implied at some point that Drawlight is the one who's been saying things about laundry. <laughs> like like yes. Mr. Norell says it is like I've never done a bit of laundry by magic in my life and it, the camera just cuts to draw light a little bit and he just kind of looks away <laughs> well never mind that he says it's like this really subtle thing that nobody's paying attention to I think but a, it's I, obvious to the viewer I think that Norrell says I want to know who started that rumor and draw light says yes I'd like to know too and then he like kind of looks down at the floor. <laughs> yeah that guy's name is LaSalle the, the guy that's with draw light LaSalle Okay, and he ends up, like, writing the book on Norrell. Yeah. Uh-huh. They're also terrible. And, but, yeah, but it, it, it is just, yeah, like, it, it, from the get-go, you see them, and you're like, you have... Worms. Yes, slime, yes, worms. Slime. Worms. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, when, uh, what's the joke they tell that makes, uh, when uh, Norrell goes into the uh, the corpse... LaSalle says, I'm thinking of writing a play about this, but I can't remember what the punchline was. Oh. oh. Uh, the, cor- the, like the corpse is still there or something like that. And it just makes uh, makes Strawlight just, just cackle in his, in his foppish, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, laughter. And it's like just, just so inappropriate and shows no, like, weight of being in a house of boarding at all. Yeah, like, they could care less. Someone is dead here. Yeah. I, I, th- I think that's the moment where you realize just how little like ethical uh merit these two characters have is 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 that joke and it's a great way to reveal that like there's a thousand ways you could choose to reveal that but having them telling a joke at in the house of mourning about death is Mm -hmm. a great way to say no one should like these characters yeah yeah i Um, also really like the guy that's in charge of the of the york society of magicians the not another great voice his voice is so good like as soon as you see him speaking you're like oh Gosh, <laughs> I know exactly what this guy is. <laughs> yeah, um, I w- that guy's amazing. I want you guys to talk about Childermas a little bit because he's great. His presence is so tangible. Uh, like uh, his appearance and his his voice tone just really did remind me of Snape. Mm-hmm. Um, but. It, He's also, there is something enigmatic about him that doesn't go away through the entire series. I don't think they ever explain, like, how he became Norrell's servant. Yeah, and um, you are questioning, and there are times where they deliberately want you to be questioning, like, whose side are you on? What is, like, what is your motivation? What is your end goal? And he has left the mystery box. Even as, like, we, we are able, even in this first episode, I think, to pretty clearly lay down a lot of the attributes we assigned to Norrell 
and strange. Uh-huh. And, but he's a pretty key character, and they deliberately leave him mysterious. Is he the one that actually suggests, like, kind of insinuates to Nora and's like, maybe now is the time to go to London? No, well, it's not stuff. even. Uh, well, no, it, it's Segundus. Segundus okay. says to him, would Norrell mind if I wrote about this in the papers? And he says, yes, but it's time. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so like, he gives him permission, but it's saying Norrell's not going to be happy about this. He'll be upset, but do it anyway. Like, yeah. like he is definitely... He's a manipulator. Yeah, he's causing some stuff to happen. And he's he's the one that realizes there's more to the street magician. Like, Norrell is, mm-hmm. you know, the grand magician, and he just is frustrated and disgusted by the street magician. But uh, what's his name again? Chil- Childermass. Childermass. He, he's like, I got to go look into this. <laughs> I got to find out exactly what's going on. And I like, I just really want to know kind of like what his history with Norrell is, because they have a very uh, like committed connection. Yes. As you see through through various events, like it is an intense connection, and and Norrell cares about him more than a, a typical servant. I love um, servant master. I think he's fascinating. I love his voice. Both like it is hard to hear sometimes. Like I felt timber, I needed to turn up the volume for him. Yeah, like the the timber, the tone of his voice, and also um his like his accent and the delivery is all totally spot on for like mysterious, but but um. Like there's a strength in Childermass, and we talk about agent. One of our favorite uh, themes on this podcast, agency. Um, like who has agency in this film? Childermass is super high, <laughs> and yeah, Norrell, I think is low. Norrell has almost mm-hmm. no agency. Yeah, like he's waiting for permission to do almost anything that he does, yes. mm-hmm. or an invitation. Mm-hmm. And in, in even half the time when he does stuff, he doesn't know why he does it. And he doesn't know if he wants to do it. And he does it reluctantly or, <laughs> I mean, he just, it's all like. Drags his feet. Yeah, it's all fits and starts with Norrell. But Childermass has a very clear vision of what he wants to have happen. And he makes it happen and in a way that I don't know. Maybe, maybe Jonathan Strange, we could say, has some of that. But Arabella also, I think, has is a really strong, uh, like, agentive character in this. She moves things along. Also, I feel bad for not giving her a name, but the fiance, I, I couldn't remember Lady the name. Lady Pole is all they really Yeah, Lady Pole. She becomes like very interesting. Episode, once, she, think... once she's back from the dead, mm-hmm. like, keep an eye on her if you're going to watch this, <laughs> this series. It, it's really interesting what happens. I think that's what they generally call her. Like, even the second episode Lady is... Pole. Lady yeah. Pole. Yeah, it, it's like, how, how is Lady Pole yeah, or yeah. something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Stephen Black, the, the servant. Oh. So, I mean, this, okay, I was gonna save this for final thoughts, but I guess we're probably just about out of time. And I don't think there's a way to dig into this theme with only the first episode having had a full plot reveal. Mm-hmm. But if you are gonna go watch this or you have watched it, think about the theme of servants and masters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how that gets played. Uh, and like as you start to walk your way through the, all the servant master relationships in the series, is like I think you'll have some insights if you're watching for it, or if you think back through it if you have already watched. And it. I think I think yeah. closely tied to the issue of masters and servants is the issue of contracts and agreements. And mm-hmm. like there's there are so many contracts and agreements made throughout this, both magical and otherwise. Uh, that are super closely tied and often uh, the relationship of master and servant hinges on a contract that has or has not been made or has been made in ways that one may or may not have understood clearly. Uh, but I think those two things like tied together really well. 
and I, th- I will also just one last thing to keep an eye out for that we can't really get into in much depth. Uh, the theme of doubling or mirrors or dark, dark, uh, doubles of yourself. Yes. You know, all, all of those definitely, definitely are unavoidably going to be part of what you notice as you watch this show. Okay, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us. For show notes and links to all of the other great Dueling Genre shows, go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. It really helps us out. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episodes number 71 and 73, where we talked about the novel uh, The Night Circus, and episode number 94, when we talked about the Netflix series Stranger Things. Uh, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have great conversations there with uh, our listeners and would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. The other thing that I yeah. think is interesting about Strange is, um, oh man, I just lost it. Hang on one second. So, first definite edit point, Andrew. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we were doing so good. For, it's been pretty good. Yeah, I know. For, for, for shaking off two weeks of rust, I think we've been doing marvelously. We should do this more often. Take two weeks. <laughs>